welcome to One Week, One Year, a podcast where we watch and discuss a year of film history every episode, starting from 1895, the dawn of cinema. And this week, we're talking about 1926, late silent era. Uh, I'm one of your hosts, Chris Ellie. I am a film projectionist, and joining me as always is... I'm Glenn Covell. I am a filmmaker. And uh, just so everybody knows, uh, on top of the show here, if you are watching on YouTube, uh, if you prefer to listen, you can hear us on your favorite podcast app. And if you are listening on a podcast app, uh, at least for the next episode or two, we don't really know what we're going to do once we catch up with copyright, but uh, uh, you can watch us on YouTube and see the films while we talk about them. Uh, so get it in while you can, while it's still hot. <laughs> yeah, we have what this episode and next episode, and after that, we have no nothing to fall yeah. back on. Yeah, yeah. Maybe we'll make a Patreon exclusive, non-existent Patreon exclusive version with the film <laughs> clips in them. Uh, but that sounds like some extra work. Yeah, it's been uh, about two months since we recorded. Um, I. Uh, was dealing with a bunch of film festivals one after the other and also had to move uh but but we're back um and yeah that's what's been going on with me film festivals and moving um what's what's going on with you glenn uh uh employment things you know um i don't know it's gonna be weird to listen back to at a later point because i'll probably not i hopefully will not be unemployed forever but um yeah not working right now but you know keeping keeping my my nose to the grindstone is that what people say i don't know looking for more uh film and tv work jump onto um and uh if anyone's got a job for glenn there you go (laughs) if you listen to this podcast and you work on a film or tv thing let me know um and uh, i have been planning very very early stages at some point this summer i want to shoot a silent picture of my own um, which I've done before, but I'd like to sort of take, I think, sort of some of the stuff I've learned watching all these and kind of apply it to a small, uh, short thing. Two-reeler. Yeah. Well, even a two-reeler, that's like 20 minutes. I'm like, too much work. Let me do a one-reeler. <laughs> but I am it thinking is- about it in that, like, structure of so a lot of two-reelers have the kind of, like, first half, second half, yeah. which weirdly kind of even applies to a lot of the features now like they have a sort of like first half second half structure to them there um, that's what they're used to <laughs> yeah yeah um, well let's let's hold that thought of the uh of the the silent comedians making feature films uh so that we can uh talk about the news from 1926 give ourselves a little bit of that sweet sweet context so uh glenn why don't you take it away <laughs> context the news of the year, 1926. General strike in the United Kingdom. Martial law were declared. The National Bar Association is incorporated in the USA. Gertrude Edel is the first woman to swim the English Channel. Weimar Republic joins the League of Nations. Hurricane devastates Miami. The Northside Gang blasts Al Capone's crime headquarters with machine gun fire. Capone escapes unharmed. Famed magician Harry Houdini dies. The man can withstand any punch by preparing his muscles to block it. But after a sneak attack, he succumbs to organ damage. 
Winnie the Pooh is published in England. Route 66 is established in the United States. Don Juan is the first feature film to feature the Vitaphone sound-on-disc technology. Cinema's favorite Latin lover, Rudolph Valentino, suddenly dies a young death. 100,000 attends the star's funeral. A little movie news at the end there. We always got to wrap it up with the movie news. Um, I think it's kind of funny that we mentioned both of those specifically. They are both notable, but we have, one, not watched not. any Rudolph Valentino's movies. Yep. <laughs> and also, we didn't watch Don Juan for this episode because it <laughs> didn't seem that interesting other than it's one like technological uh, advancement. It's got a canonical soundtrack uh, as opposed yeah. to some of these movies which have a semi-canonical soundtrack right it had it had a synchronized soundtrack but it did not have any synchronized dialogue right and sound effects i believe right yeah which is weird like you can record a voice why not just do it i I guess they'll find out soon yeah (laughs) i mean they're doing it right they're doing it at this time they're just not doing it in features yet it's like there's all those uh you know shorts of you know talking about casey at bat or whatever what a wonderful poem, Casey at the Bat. <laughs> uh, we, yeah, we, and and now we have completely missed our opportunity to talk about Rudolph Valentino at all because right. dead. he's dead from this point on. But yeah, he was uh, a, he was a huge deal in like the mid twenties. Yeah, um, but we'll uh, we'll we'll go back and revisit some of this stuff later. Yeah, uh, and 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 we'll bring you bring you along with us, listeners. There you go. Bonus uh, so anyway, the Valentino uh, years. <laughs> yeah, we'll do a we'll do a blank check for Rudolph Valentino. <laughs> Let's start off with our one short film uh, in our segment, one week, one reel. Yeah, the one short that we have to talk about today is Menil Montant. Nice, which is, as it sounds, a French film. Yeah, uh, and uh, this. Uh, where do we where do we start with this? This movie is phenomenal. Yes, it's amazing. I was very struck by this film. I didn't really know what to expect. I only knew about it because it was highly rated on Letterboxd, um, and it seemed like it was different from a lot of the other stuff that we had watched up to this point. Um, and yeah, I was this. I don't want to get ahead of myself. This might be my favorite thing that we watched. Yeah, for nineteen ninety six. Uh, yeah like yeah <laughs> it's it's very good um it's a french film but made by a i guess a russian a russian-born filmmaker dmitry kirnasov mm-hmm. i believe i'm saying that correctly and yeah it feels like it's like it's like the confluence of like all the kind of recent advancements in like storytelling like this feels incredibly modern in terms of it's like cinematography and it's editing and it's storytelling Honestly, it feels more than modern. When I was watching Menil Montant, I was thinking um, movies these days would never do something this adventurous, you know? Unless, these days... unless it's a animated Spider-Man movie. <laughs> right. It is doing things with the camera, with the editing, that are so evocative of mood and and feeling and just like getting a sense of a scene through kind of uh artful formal editing um it's the kind of thing that you don't you don't even see in movies like movies or nowadays like movies are so 
such a machine as far as like how they're edited and like really stylistic flourishes like this i feel like don't even exist anymore it's better than movies now damn hot take (laughs) um i think i think you can see this stuff um but yeah it's definitely not super mainstream i guess the the plot of this movie is like not the most notable thing about it i feel like it's sort of a mix of a lot of kind of 1910s 1920s storytelling things of like poverty and murder and love triangles and that sort of thing i mean yeah i think this handles it in a much more mature way well yeah for sure um right it's like on paper it's like oh yeah this is what a lot of dramas from this time period about but the way that it's executed is so so much more simultaneously like more subtle and also i feel like the like really dramatic bits are incredibly striking and dramatic i mean this movie opens with an axe murder yeah um and And it it is upsetting yeah and that axe murder the way that it is depicted is so good it's like so um it's it's got all this quick cutting like this almost like psycho style like stabbing like past the camera uh to kind of you know not show all of the gore but like to get the feeling across um and the main thing you know what a like what a splash at the beginning of this movie uh and the main thing that it serves it's not even like the main thing that the movie's about which i was kind of surprised about uh the main thing it serves is just to kind of like establish this kind of emotional context for uh the two main characters yeah it is funny that is the axe murder is like kind of incidental to the rest of the movie like it, it's it's sort of setting yeah. it's setting up the rest of it but it's like the movie's not actually about this like horrific murder that it opens with it's about two sisters who survive the the ex-murderer um their parents are killed and yeah the whole movie's like very ominous very uh kind of nightmarish and surreal i feel like even if it's visuals aren't necessarily that out there just it creates this really this really kind of intense tone through the whole yeah there's a lot of like brooding in this movie Mm. and like the brooding is emphasized by the the editing one one thing that i wanted to mention about the murder at the beginning before we hop into the main story also is that it was doing something really wild which it's it seemed to be like as the murder was happening cross-cutting between the present and the future Mm -hmm. uh so it was showing the murder happening and then showing the people like finding the body later and like back and forth which is wild like it's really interesting there's a lot of like playing around with time and space in the edits in this Mm -hmm. which is a thing that feels really kind of experimental and, and adventurous for when this was made and it feels really cohesive it works really well yeah um yeah, there's a lot of kind of Soviet-style uh, Eisenstein or Zygobertov-esque edits going on. But it feels so... I think especially with the Zygobertov stuff that we've seen, that just feels experimental for the sake of experimentation. Of just sort of like, I don't know, does this work? Um, which isn't necessarily a bad thing. But it's like, I feel like in this, it's really... It's really being used for, like, a clear narrative purpose. Yes, yes. Um, which makes it stand out, for sure. 
which I think it brings this kind of like practical usage to um to the kind of formless experimentation shapeless experimentation that Vertov did in Kino Eye mm-hmm. um I, I I think of this movie as like fulfilling on it's like Kino Eye asks a question mm-hmm. of what of what the cinematic lens can be. And this movie is coming up with an answer in light of all of the kind of experimentation that Vertov did. Yeah. Um, I think this and what we could talk about next, a page of madness are both very post Kino eye in that way. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. For all of its sort of like formal experimentation stuff, which is all really impressive. The thing that really, makes this one stick out to me the most is because it it got a really kind of genuine emotional reaction out of me also yeah like i teared up watching this movie which hasn't happened that many times on like watching stuff for the podcast Mm. um there's a a really incredible scene where one of the two sisters um and the the title manila monton is referring to a, a neighborhood in paris where the majority of the movie takes place and there's a scene where one of the sisters is sitting on a park bench next to an old man eating a salami and some oh. bread. And it there's no intertitles in this, I don't think. I don't no. think there's any at all. So there's there's no words over it. It's just it's just focusing on her face. It's just letting us sit with her right she like she's going hungry cuz she's living in poverty and the old man gives her some bread. And she's her like, acting is incredible. And she's crying while eating this bread. And I was just like, it's just holding on her face. And it was uh, really moving. Yeah, it's like this really touching moment of kindness in a movie that has a lot of misery in it. Um, yeah. Or ennui is maybe, like, ennui uh, that leads to misery. Yeah, yeah. Uh, the kind of bare bones plot of this movie, um, after the murder, the two sisters move into Paris into the city um there's a lot of like really fantastic shots of uh like city life and it's like the hustle and bustle it's so exciting you know um and uh the kind of main sister that we follow uh meets this guy uh they they start they start you know kind of going out they eventually um come to the situation where the guy is kind of like pressuring her into sex uh and she's like not she's not ready i guess she's not like super she's like she likes him but she doesn't want to um and he kind of just pressures her and pressures her until she does um and uh or she concedes i suppose and uh this i think is pretty unique in that most movies about this kind of situation uh of this time it is like an out and out like rape basically Mm. um where this is presenting something like a little more pedestrian a little more um like nuanced not that it's not not that there's anything not wrong about it but like (laughs) this is it's nuanced in terms of its approach because she does like him but doesn't want this and 
Uh, and so after they have sex, she spends like 10 minutes in the movie just kind of wandering around the city in this kind of like weird, confused ennui about what is happening or what had just happened to her. And it's so emotionally like nuanced and complex. It's, it's amazing. Yeah. Um, yeah, I feel like the, a big takeaway from this movie is like, I, along with probably most people have this sort of like ingrained idea of like what silent movies are. And it's basically Mm -hmm. Charlie Chaplin movies. And this is like so far. And even like amongst Charlie Chaplin movies, like a woman of Paris is like, not like that at all. Yeah. Um, I need movies about Paris from the twenties, man. They, they go, they're wild. (laughs) (laughs) Even something like that is something that I think kind of thematically, even if it's touched upon in other things, of other movies like this it's usually not handled with the degree of nuance that this sort of approaches it with she sees after this you know ennui stuff there's a scene where the younger sister sees the the man that uh she's with this conrad Veidt looking dude um it's not conrad Veidt, but he has a similar kind mm-hmm. of like sharp-faced man uh look to him but but a little more french yeah exactly it's got um, french vibe. but so he sees this guy with uh she she like follows him and sees her with her older sister and discovers that uh he's he's two-timing her um and there's this sort of jump cut edits into her face and it's the way that it's framed and the way that it's edited is like the same it's kind of mirroring the scene where like she discovers that her parents have been murdered Mm. um which is just a great great use of like film language to be like oh this is like taking the emotion of one thing and kind of applying it onto another scene Mm. just through Mm -hmm. sort of like the way it's shot and edited which is great yeah that's that's cool i didn't notice that there's 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 so much like this is like the most kind of emotionally complex and rich movie that i feel like we've seen so far and i think Um, it leaves I think it's interesting, like, reading, uh, like, plot synopsis of it, too, because, like, there's there's things in it that I think are genuinely kind of meant to be read more than one way. Mm-hmm. Um, like, there's a scene where uh, the older sister is having this kind of uh, weird dream and is looking at the empty side of her bed. And at first, it kind of seems like she's worrying about her younger sister because, like they grew up together and it's she's looking at this empty side of the bed and like you know this is all done purely just through visual so it's like you can't really tell what she's thinking about but then given what happens later in the movie um it could just as easily be her thinking about the the man they're both sleeping with like um i don't know just that too of sort of like having some ambiguity and having things that mean multiple things is also like not super common i guess in a lot of stuff that we've that maybe that's not true but i don't know that for whatever reason that scene stuck out to me also yeah back backing up to like real quick i gotta mention that like we have had um we've kind of had sex scenes in movies before but like they are usually um they're usually rape scenes honestly uh, which is an unfortunate amount of them are yeah yeah uh and 
they're they're never i guess the i like they're never shot to be sexy they're shot to be scary um mm-hmm. and you know though this is not some like a something that she was into um you know it, it be, it get reaching into that like emotional complexity uh this is like this is almost like the first proper sex scene that we've seen in a movie um it's got this like super imposition of like rushing cars going by like mm. on top of like footage of kind of ambiguous nudity behind <laughs> behind uh, like all of this imagery um and like it is it's it's very like evocative um in in a in a fairly like artistic way uh so i just thought i should shout that out yeah um, yeah the uh, the way this movie wraps up uh is <laughs> what just the way this movie wraps up is you know <laughs> it's not really funny i don't know why i'm laughing at it but no uh so the guy like basically ditches her after this encounter um and uh she ends up uh getting pregnant and uh is kind of like rejected by many people Mm -hmm. um yeah she's like shunned by all of society seemingly yeah which i think that we've seen in other movies too where like pregnant women are treated as like like vermin and they're like forced like live on the street and like give up their babies at a church or something like like that's that's been in like at least three other things we've watched i feel like right (laughs) um so yeah she she ends up on the street uh with with a baby and um she later as she you know there's this moment that you were talking about earlier with her kind of being hungry and this like really nice old man kind of sitting on the bench eating Ugh. salami and then hands some salami to her uh, it's so touching <laughs> yeah um and eventually she runs into her sister again her sister almost like doesn't even recognize her um it's, her sister's with that guy at this point and she is kind of living a kind of fabulous flapper lifestyle she's wearing really nice clothes um and so the uh the the main sister who um we're mainly following um kind of approaches the other one and you kind of think that it's going to be going for this sort of love triangle like love triangle thing of Mm -hmm. um of the two of them like fighting it out over this guy like i want to get this guy back or something but really it's like this kind of moment of like understanding and tenderness between the two of them uh where the uh the sisters start kind of helping each other out and like raising the baby Mm -hmm. yes and then at the same time there's this other thread that that develops of the guy is seeing yet another woman in the chain and then yeah. there's another guy who is trying who that woman was with who is now trying to get revenge on 
the the sucky guy from yeah. from earlier uh and uh you don't even see much context of who these people are you just know that they were similarly jilted yeah. by the yeah. scumbag um and then they kill him <laughs> yeah they smash his head in um which is also kind of like that's like at the very end then it is again kind of like mirroring the mm-hmm. beginning like the opening murder scene good stuff yeah a movie a movie about uh uh wandering around uh, in various states of misfortune uh bookended by murder yeah yeah (laughs) um but i was i was kind of blown away by by this i thought it was really really good yeah um and i would never heard of it before like like when we recorded the last episode i never heard of it yeah yeah um, this is one that uh, Jack Vernick, who we had on for the Irma episode, has been hyping up to me for oh, really? months. Yeah, this yeah. is one of his favorite movies. Mine too. I thought it was great. Yeah, it feels like one of those sort of like real. When you get real deep into like silent movies, you find this one. It's like, oh no, this is this one doesn't get talked about maybe as much as it ought to, but it's it's very yeah. good. So we can move on to our feature presentation. Now that we're done with that. And now we're pleased to bring you our feature presentation. Why don't we start off with uh, Page of Madness, which is another movie in the kind right. of uh, yeah. post-Kino Eye uh, impressionistic editing sort of uh, realm. Yeah, yeah. I'm, a, I'm curious about, so this is uh, a Japanese movie. I'm curious how much, because this has a similar kind of editing style or like, you know, it's it like you said, it feels post uh Kino I post sort of Eisenstein. Um and I'm curious how accessible were films in across countries? Uh yeah, I mean we've seen a lot of like French movies playing in America and that kind of thing. Uh we're gonna be talking about the general later and that movie for some reason premiered in Tokyo. Yeah. Uh, yeah. <laughs> but uh so so maybe uh the director didn't list that said that he hadn't seen a lot of other movies or other countries movies before he made this movie um but he he said later on that um a movie that he'd watched and found influential was the last laugh mm, um, i which, can definitely see that because yeah i wrote that down like there's a lot of, a lot of last laugh stuff in this or it feels kind of influenced by that i think like maybe this was if there weren't wasn't any direct like cross-pollination with russian movies then this was probably someone taking what murnau did in last laugh and uh extrapolating it out in a direction that happens to end up being somewhat similar to a russian sensibility yeah it feels kind of like it's using kind of similar to Manuel Montan, like it's using every trick in the book that's been like done up up to this point especially this yeah. i think this one even more so in terms of like there's a lot of camera movement um there's a lot of like like yeah like dutch angles montage du- double exposure uh funhouse mirrors yeah um, a lot of like turning um turning kind of regular imagery into stuff that's like bizarre yeah. and abstract and i think kind of similarly to uh you know montant has this kind of like ominous 
like nightmarish quality to it mm-hmm. um like it's a bit surreal and a bit just it's this not even that a bit not surreal even, <laughs> not even that it's spooky but it's just this like this 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 like dread that is sort of infused into it yeah yeah i mean i think that like you know what mental montant is is i feel like it's its main feeling is ennui mm. where this one is like tension and then like panic yeah <laughs> i mean it's called the page of madness and it yeah. takes place in a uh, an asylum so yeah it's apt there's a lot of i mean and, and sort of uh it is really using the kind of the the breakdown of sanity uh to sort of not necessarily justify it's it's like visual language but it's like using a lot of that kind of subjective impressionistic stuff to portray this like uh, detachment from re- reality and sort of it's got it's got real kind of like Shutter Island, Jacob's Ladder vibes, right? Yeah, right? Uh, sort of like for a, sure. The descent into madness. I mean, it's it's doing uh, a, a similar thing to Caligari in mm-hmm. in that it is using, yeah. um, it, it's using the featured mad people of the story to emphasize a a kind of less literal, more impressionistic filmic. Mm-hmm. Uh, landscape yeah uh caligari through i don't know kind of strange story turns and uh and painted backdrops that are very kind of strange and impressionistic yeah. where this like is using like camera techniques to yeah. uh, accomplish all of that one thing that like in addition to just all of the kind of superimpositions and weird like animation almost and like other stuff going on in this movie was that I noticed and I don't know if this is due to um the degradation of the film print or if it was mm. intentional but this like really highly saturated really grainy look to it uh and it almost felt like everything like the grays were pushed closer to white or black in this movie um and it felt like this really like heightened chiaroscuro reality i mean i think that this definitely does have a lot of like pretty stark high contrast lighting in it i think Mm -hmm. that is exaggerated even further by the fact that yeah i think whatever version of this movie is like available to watch for free online is pretty degraded isn't like the best scan or the best print of it and so i think it is a bit like watching like alien on VHS or whatever, where it's like you lose a lot of the detail, but you get this like really kind of stark, uh, uh, visual style. There's Um, HD versions of it available, but even the HD stuff kind of looks like it was scanned off of like 16 millimeter or something mm, like that. Yeah. And I think Um, that might be the only version of it that exists. Cause I mean, this was considered a lost movie until I think the seventies. Yeah. 1971. It was rediscovered the director found it in his garden shed which is crazy <laughs> it's crazy how often that story happens where it's like oh yeah here it is <laughs> it was under the floorboards the whole time that kind of stuff like always that one time i bought a film reel off of ebay and i bought it mainly for the reel itself mm-hmm. uh, it, it was a goldberg yeah. brothers like a st- steel film reel yeah. which 
they're really solid. They've been making them for a hundred years. Yeah. Uh, and I, I needed a few for projectionist reasons. Uh, and like to buy a new one's about a hundred bucks, but you can sometimes find them just on eBay uh, that people sell for decoration and that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I bought a few that way, but one of them came with some film on it. And it was this like really, really degraded film. It uh, was had water damage it was all kind of fused together it was all brown and you know flaky uh and so i removed the film uh in kind of you know as as non-destructive a way as Mm -hmm. i could because i thought maybe there was some of it that i could salvage but like it kind of just like fell apart and turned to dust in my hands holy shit and i'm always just like like i i still have like a good chunk of it around but it's all just like this stuck together like it smells of vinegar very mm. badly yeah um and it's like you can barely make out it seems to be a cartoon but you can barely make out what images mm. are on on it um and it's it's long enough for midnight <laughs> it's uh, that's uh, like what i've always wondered is like is it like could that have been something that's lost you know because yeah. all those stories yeah. are like that are like you found something that you know was gone uh, mm-hmm. just randomly Although it did smell like vinegar, which means that it is celluloid acetate and not celluloid nitrate. So ah. it wouldn't be anything from before the 50s. Yeah. Uh, See? So maybe it's, maybe it's that your... actually so- sal- soothes my worries yeah. a bit more. Yeah. <laughs> um, I also just like that uh, you're pro- projector savvy enough to be like, I know what kind of film it is because of the smell. <laughs> um, which is like, I guess if you've handled either of those two types of film it's like it's pretty clear which one smells like which yeah or at least as they're degrading which one Um, smells like which yeah that is a thing i think if you if you've never handled motion picture film is that it has a very distinct smell yeah i never knew until i started doing stuff with film um you're probably i mean since you're doing stuff by shooting on film i wonder if you're smelling more like chemicals than i am uh, maybe i mean yeah usually when you open up a a, a a roll of 16 millimeter it usually has a you know it's got a bit of a bit of a smell to it <laughs> it's 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 one of those things where it's not a, like a pleasant smell but i do kind of like it right yeah um anyway. i mean it's yeah anyway uh, but page of madness good movie page of madness yeah um so the the rough overview this movie is not a super plotty movie because, like, it's a lot of it's a lot of it's scenes. A vibey movie. It's a lot of scenes that also like end in dead ends because it's a lot of things that might be real or might be imagined, um, or sort of like are real part of the time, and then you it like loops back on itself and you see what really happened. Like, there's a lot of that kind of stuff in this, um, but it's the main overview of it is it's about a janitor who works at an asylum in the country. Uh, whose wife is an in an inmate, a uh, patient. Asylums are weird in that I'm not sure if they're more prison or more hospital. In the 20s in Japan, wow. I guess we're we're leaning more towards the prison side of things. <laughs> um, but a lot, a lot of movies about asking that um, question. <laughs> this gender is working at the asylum and is sort of losing his own grip on reality, and is also worried that that his daughter that he had with his wife is also like losing her grip on reality or that bad things are going to happen to her there's a lot of scenes that sort of like begin one way that then are revealed to be 
sort of imaginary or sort of revealed to be not really what is happening. Mm-hmm. Um, there's a, a, a like the opening scene is this like dance scene with all this like you know fancy set design and stuff, and then that is revealed to be a woman dancing alone in like this padded cell basically. Mm. Um, very much the the sucker punch of its day. Um, <laughs> got to make that joke whenever possible when a modern thing is like an old thing. Again, no intertitles, so a lot of like giving you an impression of a scene and kind of letting the audience interpret it a bit more. I think this movie, like Mino Montan, is a little bit less concerned about like cut and dry storytelling and is more about, yeah, like you said, vibes and sort of creating creating an overall sort of feeling and it being yeah a lot less literal i think this even more so because this is very much about sort of like what is real what is what is in someone's head like so it's it's taking that even further yeah i think that this movie like i i i recognize that it's trying to do something different from metal montant or last laugh for example uh, Mm -hmm. as another movie that doesn't use intertitles more or less um but I think that even though this movie is going for something less plotty, uh, I, I think it has less of a grasp on how to keep the viewer like abreast of what is actually happening in front of them. Mm. E- even in like, uh, you know, it's subverting things, it's revealing that things are delusions, but like, I think it's harder to follow um, even though um, d- like even outside of all of that stuff. Mm. I feel like I needed a bit of a plot summary to tell me the actual reality of like what was even in the movie. I definitely did uh, too. Yeah. <laughs> I had to like at the end look up like what what was the plot of this because it's um I think there's a a bit of our sort of like modern disconnect with like the storytelling of silent movies and so sometimes it they are harder to follow for that reason. Mm. Um but I think this especially because also because it has so many kind of like weird cul-de-sac scenes of like there's a whole like riot that happens in the in the asylum and it's the sort of thing like did that did that really happen in the sort of like reality of the movie this is getting into a whole question also that i kind of have a problem with like what really happened like none of it happened it's a movie it's all made up and so once you start (laughs) applying that question to something it almost it becomes like all right well this entire thing is impressionistic then yeah um which I think saves the movie in many ways. Like it, it does like, um, it saves the movie from its kind of, uh, difficulty that you would have to grasp onto what's happening yeah. because, uh, it is emphasizing the dread. It's emphasizing the insanity. It is making you feel like the tension of just existing as someone who has lost their mind. Yeah. Um, this was made by a group of artists called Shinkan Kakua. Oh man, what 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 was the translation? Uh, it roughly translates to new impressions or new perceptions. I think new perceptions is kind of usually how it's translated into English. Um, which yeah, it was like a, a literary movement in Japan in the twenties. Um, I have a yeah. quote by one of the the guys who is in this sort of like art movement 
uh, Rishi uh, Yokomitsu. Yeah. Um, and the quote is, the phenomenon of perception for Shinkankakua. Sure, we'll go with that. <laughs> Uh, is, to put it briefly, the direct, intuitive sensation of a subjectivity that peels away the naturalized exterior aspects and leaps into the thing itself. I think that's a really good key into understanding what this movie's going for. Yeah, that kind of is unlocks what this whole movie is, because this movie is that. Like, that's what its entire goal is. is yeah. It's, it's, it's giving you a, like, the, a direct intuitive sensation <laughs> of a subjective experience yeah of uh, this it's this like, one guy's right this one character's experience of like he has lost sight of what is real and what is not because he's kind of surrounded by people who are delusional and so he is then becoming delusional himself yeah yeah and like i think that this is a movie that relative to a lot of other stuff that we've seen like really brings you inside of the reality of the character mm -hmm. um especially someone who you know is losing their grip on reality like a lot of the time you'll see that happening to somebody but like right. in this movie you feel it happening yeah yeah through through filmmaking mm -hmm. uh, you know it's it's a show don't tell kind of thing yeah um which i mean i'll a lot of these silent movies are pretty showy because they can't tell a lot of things, but it is, this is definitely I mean, worth your titles. It is very much like we're seeing that transition right away from the kind of stagey locked off, like wide camera stuff um, into yeah, a much more subjective type of, of filmmaking. It's, it's cool to see like the, the different kind of stabs at it of like how more now is doing stuff. And we'll talk about him more in a bit. Um, and like the Soviet things and just like, yeah. And the fact that none of these are really, um, none of these have sort of like combined necessarily into like a centralized accepted film language, the way that I think stuff is kind of now. And so it's, yeah. it's interesting to see different people try like wildly different things that are all now kind of, uh, we kind of take it for granted of like, oh yeah, subjective editing or subjective cinematography and the whatever moving cameras and it's cool to see each each of these different people sort of like uh find new approaches and like combine these different things it's, it's exciting to kind of watch it happen like year by year yeah yeah i mean i think you know you're talking about it like a formalized film language although i feel like that is the kind of thing that was happening over the course of the 1910s mm. was that like the 1910s was them was everybody kind of and, you know, it's not perfect. It's not fully modern. But, like, I think up until the 1910s, there weren't many rules as to how you made a movie. In the 1910s, they were discovering how how making a feature film, like, fits, how it mm -hmm. works. Um, and by the end of the 1910s, I think that they had come up with a bit of a kind of, for the time, standard Hollywood cinematic language. And in the 1920s, they're, they, they got into this period of like re-experimenting okay we've got this like foundation mm -hmm. of how to make a feature film now let's make it weird again and find new cinematic techniques kino eye montage etc yeah this movie and last laugh and 
Caligari and all of this stuff is like an is a reflection of that. Yeah, yeah. Another thing with this, because this movie has so much kind of like layers of reality to it, there's a lot of uh, there's like a lot of dance in it and a lot of mask symbolism, which I was like, ah, yes, the masks. What is the mask and what is the face? <laughs> the masks um, that we all wear, <laughs> indeed. Um, but it, I don't know. I, I I liked how it's like it is uh, it is giving you kind of like symbolism throughout it of that mm-hmm. like. Yeah, like a dance is a kind of uh, an expressionistic thing. I don't know. I thought it was cool that there's dances and masks in this movie. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. And it is like it's it's a super vibey movie. Like it's it, it felt like the kind of thing more like the kind of thing that you see on a wall in a museum than the kind of thing that you would see in a theater. Mm. Uh, as far as just like it's a bunch of abstract imagery that is getting a vibe across mm-hmm. and and more less about like a story being told yeah uh and so i think that like this movie it um it it drags a little bit it like can't keep up that tension at all times mm. uh so i think it works pretty well for the first like 40 minutes and then it kind of starts uh it like dips a little bit uh and then like finds itself again toward the end right yeah uh, but, but yeah, I think for like holding that sense of tension for forty minutes is certainly commendable. Yeah. How to transition? What else was experimental? Uh, well, you mentioned Faust, or True. you mentioned Murnau, so we might as well talk about him now. Because we might as well talk about Murnau. Yeah. Uh, this is a pretty wild movie. Yeah. Faust. Yeah. We've seen so many Faust stories, but this one is definitely yeah. the most detailed. This is kind of the the like canonical Faust movie, I think, too. Mm. Like this one is kind of considered like the. I don't know if anyone has directly adapted Faust since, really, but um, that they must have. <laughs> I mean, in, yeah, I don't know if like in this, yeah, I don't, I don't know. It's something to look up. But uh, this is Murnau's last German film. After this, he he moves to Hollywood. Mm. Um, and what a German movie this is, because it, I mean it's it's uh, a German folk tale, as stated in the opening titles. Um, and yeah, it's Faust. Yeah, it's the <laughs> Faust story. You know, you know Faust. Although, One although I will say, like you know, everybody knows Faust. Uh, and I, I'm sorry if I if I hurt your feelings if you don't know Faust, but um, it is uh, th- there are elements of the story that I was not aware of that I became aware of because of watching this. Yeah, um, it is. So Faust was a real guy who lived in the like 15th, 16th century, like late 15th century, who was an alchemist, uh, a scientist. Uh, a, you know, back when all those things were the same like a doctor an right. alchemist a wizard like a barber yeah yeah um allegedly he died in an alchemical explosion which is great right he was like <laughs> mixing together some chemicals and he blew up um i mean not good for him but what a way to go out um good the, for the sort of legend that this is based on and that fa- the name is associated with has been around since at least the 16th century and is kind of the quintessential like be careful what you wish for story 
or fake monkey paw kind of thing right i believe it predates the monkey paw probably um but it is like that it is like the archetypical like man is a man wants thing is approached by mysterious benefactor who grants his wish and then he's like oh no this was terrible why yeah, did i mysterious wish benefactor benefactor being satan yeah um, um i mean i'll i mean you could say if you're talking about this sort of like legendary uh you know parables uh, in our society that like you could go back to icarus you know? right yeah like faust faust is a in a way a descendant of the icarus story yeah very true this movie is primarily based on the 1832 play um but it, it takes from kind of a bunch of different sources but that's sort of its main source material is the the play version which i think with a lot of silent movies is kind of there was that progression right where even even stuff adapted from novels would often take a lot of stuff from whatever the stage version was like frankenstein did that jekyll and hyde did that a trip to the moon's based on a play there you go this movie looks amazing yeah um a lot of really really cool imagery a lot of really movie. cool imagery a lot of miniatures a lot of effects this is like a really like expensive looking movie i'm always like so pleased when we get a movie like this and it like feels like it harkens back to the like effects driven devil fun times this of, movie of more than like anything else we've watched <laughs> this is like very who knows if if i imagine Murnau had seen some Melier stuff so he might oh he, he must have yeah. um but this feels like almost the most direct kind of like descendant of those movies yeah where it's like look at all this crazy shit also the devil's here and it's like you know turning <laughs> stuff into other stuff i the, the devil like kept doing uh you know like doing these kind of like mean things and i was like why why is the devil being so mean why why, <laughs> why I, is I, the I was devil being so mean why is he such a scoundrel yeah oh he's a and, scoundrel all right yeah um so like the movie opens with an intertitle that says behold exclamation point and we see the horsemen <laughs> of the apocalypse flying through the sky so and it's, cool i'm not even entirely sure i'm pretty sure that's a miniature shot with like smoke being like blown at it but it's these like demonic horsemen flying steeds through the clouds um yeah it rules uh, this movie starts off with some really big really cool effects yeah there is a, an amazing amazing shot on this of uh mephisto as he's referred to sort of like looming over a city so the city is yeah. miniature, and there's this guy with these massive, massive, like, like bat wings, bat like bat, but they have feathers, so they're like crow wings almost. And he's just like looming. Oh, he's like a he's like a just a dark cloud looming yeah. over this city. It is, the and coolest he, he kind of like grows in size to just like sort of envelop the entire frame around yeah. this city. Um, there is uh an archangel also that is like the opposition to Mephisto that is this like gleaming armored winged figure that is, I was just like, Oh, so this is just where Brazil got that from. Cool. Like there's a lot of, a lot, of, a lot of stuff in Brazil that takes directly from this movie. I think. Oh, interesting. Um, and Brazil also takes from a lot of other silent movies, it takes from Metropolis. It takes from, uh, uh, Potemkin, like Caligari, I think. Too. Yeah. Um, <laughs> But it's cool to see, like, another movie that is like, oh, that 
this is also one of those one of these like core silent movies that directors mm. have just taken from over the years <laughs> this movie kind of reminded me of some of the recent Sostr- victor sostrom movies um yeah like phantom carriage i think murnau's kind of style is much better suited for it i think sostrom really excels with like kind of two people in a room having like a dramatic moment like he he like i think his best stuff is like pretty contained and is like uh just like these like intense emotional moments between people whereas i think murnau has so much a better handle on like these like big expansive wild uh like tableaus and things like that um yeah well it's like murnau also like he has so much range compared mm-hmm. to a lot of other people um you know like the last movie i think that of his that we talked about was about like a doorman who lost his job you know and it's an amazing movie it's, it's yeah. so so good <laughs> <laughs> and yeah and this one's like um yeah this one's like a big effects driven uh you know medieval magic fairy tale parable thing yeah and it rules Um, i would say the 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 movie that i detect that that shares the most dna with is um destiny the fritz lang mm -hmm. movie yeah also it feels like a bit of there was um was it the the student of prague think has a bit of i think that is like kind of indirectly based on faust anyway mm. um as many things are yeah a, a big chunk of this movie anyway is faust uh is de-aged by mephisto he, he wishes for for youth and it's it's the sort of thing where it's like oh just you just gotta renounce god and sign your name in blood it's fine don't worry about it and he's like you okay. get a, you get a you get a one day free trial it was like of... hey yeah exactly of of youth usually kind of a red flag signing your name in blood but it was medieval times so they didn't know yeah um faust was the first faust exactly and mephisto's like live a little here go go nuts here's a here's an evil flying carpet um <laughs> and oh my god the flying carpet scene uh, like it, it's not as um i mean the the prince of baghdad or thief of baghdad um the flying carpet is like looks amazing but I think that like the shot that they do, kind of showing the point of view perspective yeah. of flying through the city right. uh, yeah. on the magic carpet, uh, is so cool because it's just a really long track of miniatures mm-hmm. that the camera is flying by, uh, like going around steeples and through oh. mountains and everything. It's so it's like so cool. It's very clearly miniatures, but it looks like so fun. It's such a fun shot. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. It's a lot, a lot of great miniatures stuff in this. There's fun stuff to talk about in here. I have a lot of notes for this one for whatever reason. I know that's usually a bad sign about the movie, but I like this a lot. Mm-hmm. Um, this this is a pretty plotty movie. Like a lot of things happen. Yeah, I mean, I um, I thought it was kind of interesting. Like the the details in the plot that uh were not in these kind of earlier simpler more elemental faust adaptations uh so there's this whole thing of faust being uh, you know this bet between the angel and mephisto about whether he can corrupt the soul of a person Mm -hmm. 
Uh, and so it's kind of this, you know, it's it's like a game between the archangel and the devil, uh, uh, on like whether you can destroy this man's psyche. Yeah. <laughs> um, and then like Faust also starts off with completely good intentions. I feel like in previous simpler adaptations, it's right. like Faust is like power. He's great, a, he's love a bit it, more selfish. You know? Yeah. Whereas this is like uh, he is genuinely trying to do good in the beginning. Yeah. Yeah, like there's a lot of destitution in his community, mm-hmm. and he's doing what he can as an of, alchemist, there's as like, a there's healer. Like a, there's to, a plague. There's a plague happening. Yeah. He wants to stop the plague. Pretty yeah. noble intentions. But the thing is that Mephisto started the plague, right? Uh, as as a as a way of setting the scene to corrupt Faust. Uh, the way, by the way, you see the plague starting uh, uh, <laughs> in a kind of funny way, where like. Uh, it's back to that shot where Mephisto is is looming over the mm-hmm. entire city, and then he unleashes the plague as just like a noxious cloud coming yeah. from below. Him. <laughs> so it turns out he's... that the plague is Satan's farts. Yeah, he's crop dusting <laughs> the entire city. <laughs> but anyway, uh, Mephisto or Faust is trying to do what he can to help his his uh, the people in the city. Um, and then this guy comes up and is like, hey, I can give you unlimited power uh, mm-hmm. for one day. You have to sign in blood and then we can uh, revisit later if you want to keep that power. Uh, and so, yeah, Faust wants to do it to help people. Yeah. And then becomes corrupted by the power. Um, uh, I have a note a, in I, here that I feel like is worth mentioning of mm-hmm. when he meets Mephisto. Uh, there is some sinister cap doffing. <laughs> some what sinister cap dot like mephisto like you know doffs his oh, cap in a very in a very sinister way doffing <laughs> yeah okay but in those shots too saying. he has like glowing eyes like uh oh, amazing uh, yeah. like a cat or something yeah. it's like super cool he becomes like they realize that faust's powers are driven by the devil when he can't help someone who's holding a crucifix so uh then they they start stoning him he tries to kill himself because he's been disgraced and the devil says hold on now uh wouldn't you like to be a a, a young little man who uh <laughs> can who can score all the princesses yeah and he's like that sounds like a great deal let's do it <laughs> but then right as he's about to score with a princess he's like time's up you only had one day it was a free trial and he's like, "Oh no, please, please, keep going, keep going." You gotta, you gotta pay for this Winrar license. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> um, there was a lot of, especially in this early section, like fly, the flying carpet stuff, and the sort of he he flies on the flying carpet away to this like far off land. It's sort of ambiguous where it's supposed to be. Yeah, but it it does almost feel like Murnau was just like showing off. At a certain at certain points of just like look at the amazing <laughs> shit that I can do, there's some really phenomenal visuals. As if we haven't said that enough already, Faust agrees to to serve Mephisto forever because he's like, hey, there's this princess right here, and I don't want to be old right now. Um, but but so he uh, he quickly kind of becomes unsatisfied with this kind of life of excess that he's living. Mm-hmm. He longs for home um so he goes he goes back to his old city and meets uh, a, a sort of goody two-shoes type 
named Gretchen. And there's this whole section where he's kind of trying to woo Gretchen and Mephisto is like his weird wingman. Yeah. Um, Because Mephisto is also like seducing Gretchen's mother at the same time. And then like Um, as as Mephisto is being the wingman, he is also like kind of making it easier and more difficult at the same time because he's a scoundrel. Yeah. But so this leads to, uh, I guess Gretchen's uh, brother finds out that uh, Faust is with her and has a sword fight. Um, and then Mephisto sort of sneakily stabs the brother and blames it on Faust. And so the town kind of turns away, to, like, you know, turns against Faust and chases him away. Um, and then uh valentin 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 is the is the name of the brother and his dying breath he uses his dying breath to call his sister a harlot um yeah. which is like jeez dude like what the which you know. was like he died to try and protect her honor and then like in front of a crowd of people his dying breath is yeah you're, you're a harlot yeah <laughs> um and so then like we were just saying about how like weird old-timey uh you know ways in which society responds to pregnant women gretchen is like publicly shamed in the town square and uh gives birth to a child in winter time but there's no one to take care of them during a storm and it's this really like harsh scene where she hallucinates rocking her baby to sleep but she's actually like in the snow and so the baby dies and then uh, some soldiers find her and they're like you murdered a baby you need to be killed (laughs) it's really really dramatic yeah yeah um i guess this is medieval times so like you know it's not that uncommon medieval times not the best time to live in case you didn't know but the best restaurant to go to (laughs) i've never been i I want I haven't either. I want to go to medieval times. I know. <laughs> I really, I really need to go. Um, so uh, I have written down getting canceled in medieval times is harsh. Um, it's a, it's a genuine witch hunt. Yeah. Uh, so she calls out to Faust, who is sort of regretting his whole deal with the devil business, and he is like, he is sort of cursing his youth. He's like, ah, oh, the the delusion of youth damn you um (laughs) and so mephisto was like fine i guess you can be old again um but so gretchen is about to be burned at the stake and he like as an old man jumps on the pyre um and they they smooch as they both burn to death yeah Um, but like she like kind of recognizes the young man right she knows um it's like so their 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 love endures and so therefore that is sort of uh the movie ends on that sort of like love has conquered all and so the archangel shows up again and zaps mephisto to be like i was right and you were wrong they they had they had a genuine thing mephisto. it seems like a technicality honestly like, does, I, feel like, like, I feel like i feel like mephisto like should have won that bet mephisto pretty much won like i think fast was pretty well and pretty well corrupted even if he was regretful about it at the end yeah um but it ends on a, a nice note. 
of an archangel zapping Mephisto. That that imagery also of like the two of them kissing like on the on the burning stake. So is... dramatic and great. <laughs> yeah. Wow. <laughs> and yeah, this this movie does feel like I we've talked a lot about how especially like the Sostrom movies, like Phantom Carriage is like super dramatic and like super heavy and it's trying to be really dark and serious and all this all this drama um and i feel like it 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 doesn't it doesn't play well it's like too much it doesn't it doesn't feel genuine it feels try hardy or whatever whereas Mm -hmm. for for whatever reason this movie i think balances a lot better because it has a lot of it has a lot of fun stuff too it has a lot of just like the fun visuals the sort of um i think it's it's leaning more into a sort of like yeah the like fairy tale reality of it i think helps the like really dramatic stuff play better because it doesn't feel as as melodramatic at that point it's sort of justified by this you know when you have a giant mephisto devil looming over your city gives the movie license to sort of like go really far uh anywhere it wants to yeah one of the things that the devil mephistopheles is doing in uh in this movie is giving him a magic carpet ride to a princess and then hyping him up as a powerful prince while all of this happens it's very much a kind of demonic uh aladdin genie demonic aladdin of. yeah you're right and uh speaking of aladdin yeah. he appears as a character yeah uh in the movie uh the adventures of prince ahmed indeed he does good transition because Thank yeah you. not not on these are there's a lot of similarities between these two movies um the adventures of prince ahmed the earliest surviving animated feature film not snow white correct yeah this predates snow white by like what 20 years something like uh like 11 yeah 11 years but this is another uh uh a lot of reiniger movie we covered another one of her film a short or a couple shorts, like right? fairy tale of hers yeah uh, um, cinderella uh, right and but uh this movie is her taking her silhouette cutout animation style to a feature length uh much kind of uh more grand scale mm-hmm. uh and this movie is beautiful oh yeah um real quick on the the animated feature thing there was an earlier one before this before 26 or maybe like around the same time uh by an argentinian animator um that is lost so that is like the earliest one known or is this the earliest one that exists still also this movie has not just the sort of like cut out animation that we're used to seeing from the earlier shorts but it has some sort of like Mm opus-esque like painted uh stuff going on too which is pretty pretty cool yeah it's like i wonder if what was going on there is like paint or sand or something like on a glass plate and was being stop motion animated yeah it was like paint that was then being wiped off between every frame and like repainted and things it's crazy um also this movie is sort of smack dab in the middle of there was like a 1920s obsession with like a thousand and one nights middle eastern mythology stuff right um 
I don't know if that's necessarily because of Thief of Baghdad, or if Thief, I think it was Thief of Baghdad was like kind of part of that weird cultural thing hmm. in in Europe and the United States of like Aladdin stories. Yeah, I need to learn more about Thousand and One Nights because I'm not sure. I mean, I just know that like Aladdin is in there, like, right? Open Sesame and all of that, but like. Yeah. I know there's like a lot of other stories and they kind of intertwine with each other as this one does mm-hmm. with Aladdin. Right. Cause Aladdin uh, is like a supporting character in this movie. Yeah. Even though it, there's also, <laughs> also a lot of stuff that at least I associate with Aladdin in terms of, you know, magic lamps and genies and flying carpets. And... Yeah. Like as, as with the thief of Baghdad, this, like this character seems like a bit of an Aladdin pastiche, but then it also mm-hmm. includes Aladdin. Right. In it. Yeah. Well, I guess um, the, the difference is Prince Ahmed is a prince from the get-go. Yeah. He's sort of already uh, a fancy lad. <sighs> a fancy lad. Um, but yeah, there's definitely a vizier and princess situation mm-hmm. going on. Yeah. In this movie, uh, in, the, in the palace, there's a magician from Africa uh, who, I mean, I guess they're all kind of in Africa, but maybe lower down in Africa. Uh Oh well, I don't know. I it's yeah. South South Asia, Middle East. Yeah, I guess like some of the Middle East is in Africa, and some is yeah. on the other side of that little, a little Peninsula. sea. But uh, yeah, so the 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 magician kind of promises all of these powers, uh, and uh, he promises them what a flying horse uh, to the king. Also, the wizard is, like, casting spells in this movie. And yeah. So, the majority of the animation in this is, yeah, like, c- animated, cut-out silhouettes. Yeah. I don't understand how, like, the wizard spells were done some of the time. Like, hmm. there's some animation in it where I'm like, I genuinely don't know how this was done, like, optically. Right. Like, what layers of things are, like, you know, using photography plus, like, whatever else was going on and there's so much like really good like articulated movement of the the fingers as he's casting the spells uh, yes yeah, yeah uh a lot of like use of multiple planes to create depth with mm-hmm. the silhouettes yeah uh it's really cool even though this isn't like what i guess we would consider traditional animation of like hand-drawn or like cell animation it is definitely the i think most like complex animation that we've watched up in terms of like for the show like yeah yeah um, and and this was the case when we compared the disney cinderella to the lottie reiniger mm-hmm. one is that the cell animation was so much more like simplistic and herky-jerky yeah, yeah. Uh, compared to the uh you know even though it was made out of like articulated at certain joints uh uh paper cutouts Mm -hmm. they were able like she was able to bring out a lot more like life and character from the movement Mm -hmm. and i think that's still the case here too i feel like this animation style is much less focused on trying to emulate live action Mm. i feel like a lot of hand-drawn animation even now um is like right it's it things exist there's perspective right it's like a lot of animation is judged on like how well it can emulate live action in terms of like what the shots are and like moving camera or whatever. Which Whereas is this a bad is like rubric. Forget all that. We're just gonna make something cool 
and it it kind of reminded me in that sense like the there i feel like there has been a recent trend in animation away from emulating live action which i really like thanks to spider-man thanks to spider-man like direct like (laughs) spider-man did that um i don't know if you've seen the new one but it it is even more experimental in its animation than the first one and it's yeah it's, it's great um emperor's new groove also uh has some kind of experimental animation which i think was done because they didn't have a very big budget um but parts of i was reminded watching friends document of emperor's new groove a bit just in terms of like because that movie uses flat planes a lot in terms Mm. of like not trying to set stuff like this movie has like a scene will play out and it's not if something's further away from camera it won't necessarily be smaller like am i explaining this in a compelling way i don't know but um I, okay yeah like it's it's almost like a, an effect of like a deep focus right but, yeah but for the scenes that are being made in these cutouts um yeah is that or, is that what we were talking about i i i guess so um but the the overall thing is yeah animation looking good as animation for its own sake and not trying to recreate photography yeah um yeah i mean very specifically going for something stylistic like Mm -hmm. her style of these cutouts where it it limits her in the types of things that she's able to depict uh but she finds really interesting workarounds Mm -hmm. and um and she comes up with really like interesting things that are unique to this style of animation of these silhouettes and cutouts and and that kind of thing Mm -hmm. like certain camera angles are a lot more locked off and you can't show emotion as as well like facial emotion as well Mm -hmm. but uh she does a lot with like emotion emoting through movement in this movie yeah do you want to talk about the plot at all i feel like it's it's not far off from like keep a baghdad and aladdin like there's a lot of crossover yeah, it's got a lot of that same kind of DNA in it. I mean, you mentioned Emperor's New Groove visually, but like this move, the main thing going on in this movie is kind of like a like a Odyssean like mm. journey at, through a bunch of individual yeah. moments. Oh, Thief uh, and the Cobbler also, I feel like might oh, have yeah. been influenced by this. I guess that's also sort of a lost film. At least the the original version of it, but like the original animation of that feels maybe a little bit influenced by this maybe mm. i mean beyond the aesthetic like i mean the they're, they're, like both pull, they're both they're both pulling from the same sources for sure but I'm, and just in terms of like the animation being like very detached from that kind of like typical like hand-drawn style um yeah i mean i mean stephen cobbler is a really interesting reference point because that movie is also beautiful um it's a it's another movie that is I th- I think the singular focus of the movie The Thief and the Cobbler is what can we do with animation mm-hmm. that can potentially blow someone's mind. You yeah. Know? So it is uh the the one word that I use to describe The Thief and the Cobbler is indulgent in in as many <laughs> ways as possible. Uh, I love that movie, but uh, I guess another kind of interesting thing that you're talking about that flattening and there's a lot mm-hmm. of like really interesting, like strange perspective flattening that happens in the thief and the cop. Right. And that's, that's what I'm kind of trying to explain, but it's, it's hard. It's hard to describe, mm-hmm. I guess. I that, see. Um, 
right? It's like not trying to, it's not trying to recreate what like your eye sees in terms of perspective, but it's, it's more like a painting or like a, yeah. I mean, it's like a, um, like a cubist painting in a way where right. it's, um, it's showing, it's like flattening perspective. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, yeah. Um, but yeah, there's every scene of this is just, has got some really cool animation stuff. Oh, and some of it is just purely how it's like depicted as silhouette cutouts. Like mm-hmm. there's, there's a scene with reflections on water that is like so cool. Just the way that like, paper cutouts are used to show reflective surfaces mm-hmm. um that really kind of didn't blow my mind but i was like that's very cool this movie feels pretty in terms of the plot of it i guess it's pretty like episodic it's like a scene of yeah. this cool thing and the scene of this cool thing um yeah and it's all it's all like this you know he gets put on a flying horse that sends him to a faraway land called walk walk Right, uh, <laughs> which in Thief of Baghdad there was the Islands of Wok. Yeah. So I think that's you know kind of the same, maybe pulling from the same thing there. Um, and yeah, it's basically a journey back home to mm-hmm. uh, uh, stop the the machinations of the uh, of the, the the magician. Yeah, there's a funny scene when he he goes to the to Wok Wok, and there's there's this like orgy room. And there's a bunch of women in there that go, stay with us, attractive stranger. <laughs> but that leads to an orgy room fight because they all start fighting over him. Classic problem. You know, I'm over <laughs> into that. I mean, um, and it's like something similar happens in um, in the Odyssey and something similar mm-hmm. happens yeah. in uh, Thief of Baghdad. Where, uh, you know, this guy, like the kind of sirens who try yeah. to draw yeah. them in along their journey. Uh, but he meets uh, Peri Banu, um, who is just like the queen of the demons, basically. She, she's a volcano witch. Rad. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> she's got these like like swan feathers that allow her to fly. Uh, and a scene that like doesn't really paint Ahmed in the greatest light. But <laughs> like, you know, he sees her bathing and then uh, basically is like, this lady's pretty. I'm going to steal her feathers so that she can't fly away. And then I'm going to make her my wife. Uh, yeah. I guess we'll just gloss over that. Fair, fairy tales sometimes, you know, sometimes slightly problematic. <laughs> Welcome to discourse of, uh, of 10 years ago. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know. And it's pretty. And then a bunch of stuff happens and then he uh, gets back home. Yeah. Um, <laughs> We already said, I mean, the, the characters are really expressive. Like, it's, I'm really impressed by, like, how expressive they're able to be purely through, like, silhouettes. There's, I mean, there's a lot of just, like, cool, there's a flying palace, there's a hydra demon, there's an elephant tree beast, there is a great, like, magic fight at the end between the, the magician and the volcano witch. Oh, yeah. Oh, my God. Of, like, shape-shifting into different animals and using the, like, silhouettes to, like... W- the shape-shifting silhouette animation stuff that did blow my mind that was incredible super cool and yeah um, it's like a it's like a rock paper scissors battle of like yeah i transform into an animal i transform into animal that beats uh, that animal and then i like, like that, transform that, into a different animal that's something i want to see done in like contemporary animation or something like i want to see an animal shape-shifting animal fight like that now um oh, yeah. because this movie is german 
there is a magic lamp that is referred to in the subtitles as Die Wunderlamp, <laughs> uh, which is just a great uh, phrase. Ahmed meets Aladdin. Uh, yeah, we find out that like while Ahmed was journeying around, like the kind of beginning of the whole Aladdin story happened mm-hmm. while he was gone. And then he like, so Aladdin kind of recounts the entire Aladdin story in like a kind of 20 minute segment yeah. where we just go off and like then learn I think about it's, Aladdin. What is it? Ahmed's sister is like also a princess and that's that's who Aladdin is trying to get with. Yeah, so, yeah, right. So he's the, he's like Princess Jasmine's brother, yeah. basically. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, but yeah, and then at the end, they both end up with their respective uh, princesses. Mm-hmm. and all is well yeah good movie cool yeah. movie very cool movie. watch it it's very beautiful um it's well, also like a lot of color too um yeah it's, yeah a uh, lot of cool like you like know, tinting and toning let's talk about two movies that involve that hmm. <laughs> that involve vehicles <laughs> let's let's do our little uh our little vehicle duology here there you go what do you want to start with i think let's let's end on on the big daddy of the year <laughs> so um let's talk about the flying ace yeah which for a movie called the flying ace not a lot is of not that not a lot of flying it is weirdly also kind of more railroad based <laughs> than airplane based but yeah they must have just, like, I don't know what was going on with the name and the, like, poster of this movie, but they're they're trying to sell you, like, a kind of rollicking uh, airplane adventure movie, but it's a bit more of, like, a detective I, movie. <laughs> it is, which I did not realize at all. It is also a, distinctly a train detective movie. Yeah. It is about a railroad detective, which is a thing that was real in the 20s. And is wild that there was enough specifically train crime that railroads <laughs> need their own detectives. I'm reading the book uh, Killers of, of the Flower Moon right now. Ooh, nice. Um, which is very good. Uh, but there is, so one of the sort of like historical characters in that um, is Tom Waits, who is an FBI agent. And for a while, he worked as a railroad detective because it was like, it was like an easy detective gig. Like you know, it's it's mostly just like paperwork crimes and things. <laughs> but it's just I think it's funny in the olden times, like hotels had their own detectives. And these were I... detectives. These weren't like security guards, you know what I mean? Like a hotel right. detective was a profession. That's so interesting. Yeah. It's not even like something kind of came around to make the hotel detective obsolete. It's just like, they, they were like, do we really need this? <laughs> yeah, pretty much. <laughs> That's funny. The, the Flying Ace is, I believe, the only surviving uh, movie from Norman Studios. Hmm. So this this movie is, as it's called, an all-colored cast. So it's all, uh, all, the, all the people in the movie uh, are played by black actors. And like other movies that were produced with black actors for a black audience, uh, a lot of like in, this was in Florida, uh, mm-hmm. which seemed to be the kind of like central Hollywood of uh, of the black movie industry at the time. I think we mentioned this on another episode, but 
there was kind of Jacksonville, Florida almost became like the United States movie hub. Like after right. the sort of like flight from New Jersey and sort of looking at warmer climates with like more consistent daylight, right? That was the main reason to go to Hollywood or to go to Florida was that the daylight was more consistent because you needed to shoot most stuff in daylight mm-hmm. outside or in like a greenhouse set with a with a you know an open roof or glass roof and there's a really good uh vox.com video about jacksonville specifically and sort of like how it was this like almost like it was like a rival to hollywood for like a couple of years Mm -hmm. um and it almost became its own hub but it didn't you know hollywood won out for whatever reasons we've linked that video before but we'll link it again uh norman studios was uh owned and operated by richard norman who was white as far as i can tell um (laughs) but uh but yeah their like claim to fame i guess was that they had uh entirely black casts i have no idea what the crews were like and this is yeah this is the only one that is watchable like all of the rest are lost which i guess of of all of the ones to survive i'm glad it's this one because this movie is very fun it's a fun one yeah uh it is the poster says the greatest airplane thriller ever filmed which at this point might be true but also like there's not a lot of airplane stuff in this it's mostly a train movie (laughs) um yeah he's called a flying ace like because most of the airplane stuff also isn't even the flying ace like involved in it (laughs) yeah he was a flying ace in world war one which Mm -hmm. they called the great war at the time because world war ii had not happened yet naturally and i i almost like thought when i was watching this movie that they might have said world war one in the intertitles and i was like no way this is this, this no <laughs> whoa 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 why'd you call it world war one <laughs> what's about to happen yeah he's a flying ace from from the war um historically the u.s army air corps did not allow black pilots because olden times uh there was uh one american who did fly with the uh lafayette escadrille in france which is like the american league of of pilots who uh flew in world war one before the u.s entered the war it's what the movie flyboys is about (laughs) right yep one of the big reasons why this movie was made in the first place is it was inspired by bessie coleman who is the first african-american woman and the first Native American to hold a pilot's license. Just mm. crossing off a bunch of firsts uh, as a person. Um, and she was going to, like, work on this movie. She was going to, like, I guess, not necessarily act in it, but, like, do the flying for it and things like that. And she died in an air accident, uh, like, I think a couple of weeks before shooting. Whoa. Um, yeah. Crazy. So, some... Uh, historical context for this this movie um which yeah like you said is for all of its advertisement as like the flying ace it's an it's an airplane movie most of it is about a guy on the ground solving railroad crimes (laughs) specifically um um, there was a a payroll shipment for uh was it this train company uh like some yeah so, like, someone was uh, carrying $25,000 along the train, uh, along the rail line, and 
waiting with the station master and then uh suddenly the station master loses consciousness and the money's gone what mm. happened uh so the the railroad head honcho hears about this and then sends in the flying ace the to 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 uh investigate the situation yeah. Along oh. with his, uh, along with his sidekick, yeah, uh, his peg, his who... one-legged sidekick who has the coolest like one-legged gadget. He has like a crutch that's also a gun. <laughs> Very cool. To briefly go back to the World War One thing, it is referred mm-hmm. to in the intertitle as the World War, which I don't think I've ever seen written out like that. Where it's like, yeah, there's no numeral, but it's just you know the World War. <laughs> The you know, one that we had. The World War. <laughs> yeah. The way that the mystery of this movie is constructed is kind of interesting in that it, it has, it relies a lot on, like, flashback. Like, we see, like, the result of the crime, but then we kind of, like, flashback to see what really happened later. Yeah. As, like, the like, detective is figuring it out. It out. Yeah. yeah. Which is a very cool way of structuring, uh, like, detective movie that I don't know if you've seen before, but it's just, like, like, this is a, a pretty solid detective movie. Yeah, um, yeah. After I got over my disappointment at, at no air combat, right. I, I mean, I there, was... there is there is a big airplane chase at the end. True. Yes. Which I was. There's a certain point where the movie feels like it's wrapping up, and there hasn't been an airplane chase, and I'm like, hang on, like, <laughs> what's going on? There needs to be an airplane chase. Um, and there is. Thankfully, it doesn't yeah. do everything I wanted it to. It's it, not shot um, very interestingly. Well, it's... also because they only had one airplane, so the two <laughs> airplanes in the chase are actually the same airplane that they're trying to look like different airplanes. And yeah, they just show it on the ground uh, with some wind blowing over them, uh, yeah. and, and a yeah. background that looks like it might be a sky. Mm-hmm. There's a lot of there's like references to bootlegging, which is you know very yeah. topical from when this yeah. came out. Someone gets kidnapped and hid in the tail of an airplane in the like secret booze compartment the sort of female lead named ruth is uh i guess sort of involved in one of the the involved with one of the criminals who is the other pilot besides the flying ace of the title um and he's yeah. sort of like teaching her how to fly in the beginning of the movie he's like oh like, i'll pick you up on my plane i'll show you how to fly there's like an extended sequence of this is how an airplane works right which i'm guessing is mostly for the audience maybe yeah what i wanted to happen that did not happen was that ruth would like be in an airplane the pilot would get knocked out and she would have to fly the plane that never happens and that's Mm. my biggest knock against this movie she never actually gets to fly the plane despite being taught how in the early section that would happen in the miyazaki version of this yes uh because he loves uh spunky girls who who uh fly airplanes yes uh <laughs> that is the most miyazaki thing possible it's a spunky <laughs> girl who flies an airplane <laughs> this also is like there is a lot of uh it's like crime plotty stuff of like the detective go- the flying ace detective who works at the railroad going around and, like questioning people and like figuring out what the crime was um and like there's some various red herrings there's a couple red herrings um there's a couple boxing matches there's the aforementioned uh gun crutch and like one-legged bicycle chase where his sidekick who's an actual amputee is riding a bicycle with one 
leg and his crutch. Yeah. And then also using his crutch as a gun to chase after the criminals. <laughs> There's also, like, a really hilarious, like, moment where uh, Peg just, like, pulls an incredibly long gun out of his pants. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> like, like it, the movie is not that funny it's just like a plain you know like detective movie but then there's just this one moment where he is pulling out a gun and it is like seven times longer than you expect (laughs) it to be (laughs) yeah yeah i I don't think there's a lot of this movie this movie feels intentionally pretty light like it's not trying to be super dramatic not like fun time yeah some stuff is funny just because of how old-timey it is like uh when there's about to be a fist fight and someone says give him the hocus pocus cool movie yeah there's some um, great um i i I'll, i mean speaking of like kind of old timey isms this movie um i think is unique in a lot of other like race relatives a lot of other race movies that we've seen quote unquote mm-hmm. in that um the dialogue is not generally it happens a couple times but like not i think in a mocking way like the dialogue is not written in this sort of like broken english way it's it's not nearly as it is definitely there's a noticeable difference in the way that the spells are written that feels a bit more kind of colloquial but it is yeah it is not this like super caricatured yeah like like really vernacular african-american vernacular in english like it it like yeah it, it it seems like not disrespectful like right. that other stuff is because a lot of dialogue and in intertitles is uh is written in like there's a like abbreviations and things like that as i mean outside of this like in in buster keaton movies and chaplin movies like they the dialogue is usually trying to match a certain type of uh spoken english anyway yeah but um and this feels like that as opposed to this like really like, like uncomfortably caricatured uh, yeah. stuff from like like the um what was that other uh uh production company that uh that we watched <sighs> a couple shorts from was it ebony film uh, yes um yeah the intertitles in that are like yikes yeah, yeah. um whereas i don't remember being that thrown off by by any of these yeah, the, the, they were just kind of fun. Fun uh, kind yeah, of regionalisms. Like, like, have a chaw of tobacco. I also have that written down as bring up a chaw of tobacco. Uh, and then at one point someone says, Vamoose, you varmint. <laughs> <laughs> Which I love. <laughs> you know, how people talk in the 20s. Another movie about trains that is also probably the most, well, I was going to say the most famous movie of this year, even though it didn't really come out this year, but... Mm, we'll get into that. Let's talk about the general. <laughs> the general. Buster Keaton's um, The General. I was trying to link these two movies beyond trains because, like, this is a, you know, uh, The Flying Ace is a race movie, uh, although it does really doesn't involve racism right, in which any is way. A thing that uh, I, I also, I'm curious about even, like, what that terminology means because It just means I, a movie with black people in right, it. Right, that seems like that's how it was kind of used yeah at the time whereas it makes much more sense for like oscar michaud's movies are explicitly yeah. about that yes or at least the the one that we watched yeah whereas it, it doesn't really ever come up in the flying ace it's not 
You it's could, cool. You, 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 you could cast anyone in this movie and it would not change the script. You know what I mean? Like yeah. it's not uh that's not like a, an essential element to the narrative, I guess. Right. And another movie that that ignores the question of blackness is <laughs> 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 the general, uh, which uh, is starring some heroic Confederates uh, who Buster Keaton was not even a not even related to the Confederacy in any way. It's just that he had bought into the the now popular lost cause myth of the kind of glory of the south uh and uh and thought uh it's a little too easy it's a little too um it's not going to win over people's hearts for the 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 fallen sad south uh if we are to keep the story faithful to what it originally was and have the uh have the heroes be union soldiers right yeah um yeah i i this was that was definitely one of my biggest takeaways from this movie is that it is very much glorifying uh the confederacy in a way that is i don't like it's glorifying it in 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 an entirely apolitical like a racial way it's trying to i mean in 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 as much as that can be it's possible yeah Yeah. (laughs) um because it does feel like buster keaton did not really have i mean he wasn't from the south um, I forget where he was born, but he you know, he, he grew up in on trains, basically. Hence this train movie that he made. <laughs> and it's like he he it's rare to hear him like talk about his own like politics, I guess. He seems like he was mostly I mean, who knows? But it seemed like his 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 reasons for sort of like changing the perspective of this actual historical story from the Civil War was Less to do with the fact that he was, like, a big supporter of the Confederacy, and more so that it was, like, it let his character be uh, the underdog. Hmm. And that there was also just a very... I mean, the 1920s were a weird time, like, post-Civil War, in terms of, like, the national perspective on, like, the South and the Confederacy and, like... Yeah, I mean, post-Birth of a Nation and yeah. post-Daughters of the Confederacy trying to, you know, do this, like, liter- like this uh, PR campaign of, it's, of uh, perspective yeah. shifting. So it's, on, on I think South. it's it's hard to, like, fully understand what the, like, American, like, general American mindset or perspective was mm-hmm. in 1926. Yeah. Um, and read, it's Jim Crow, I've, you know. Right. I read a little bit about good. it, but like I don't really feel super uh qualified in order to like fully contextualize like what but it's coming out of this like weird post Civil War thing where like the South is being kind of uh mythologized. Yeah. Um recast in history. Right. And this movie is very much part of that like movement. Willingly or, or unwillingly. Yeah. Right wittingly um, or unwittingly i suppose right um and so that definitely casts a certain sort of like cloud over this movie for me anyway of like ugh, gross <laughs> it makes it difficult when i when i heard initially that there is a buster keaton movie called the general about a confederate i thought that it was about a confederate general and not about a train called the general <laughs> right, yeah 
Uh, and I was like, that's no good. That's bad. I don't like that. Uh, and then I found out that this movie is about a train engineer uh, with a train called the General. And I said, well, that, that might be a little better. Like, yeah. I guess I guess that's not so bad. And, you know, it's not like this movie is hateful in any way. It's just that, like, uh, it is more – it glorifies the Confederacy. Yeah. Uh, like, ter- de- very Quint- deliberately, though. Like, it isn't just about the fact that – Yeah. There, it's, He's not it's, incidentally a Confederate. Yeah, like, exactly. Like, like the bad guys are the Union soldiers. Yeah, and also, but like, it's it. This movie has Buster Keaton waving a flag at the end. Yeah, yeah. So it's like it's not. I feel like this movie is not apolitical. By any means. <sighs> yeah, it's just, it's just that it's not really saying anything about the Confederacy beyond like this kind of generic like veneration of mm-hmm. the 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 lost cause of the south yeah uh and it's not saying anything about race apart from the implications of venerating the right yeah. the confederacy which i think you know this is not you know it's not a hateful movie like birth of a nation uh very few films just, are <laughs> <laughs> it's hard to compare but uh, you know it is entirely unfortunate that this movie uh just on buster keaton's whim ended up becoming a confederate yeah. movie instead of a union movie because they could have just kept it that way and then it would have uh been all of the good stuff without any of the the stink of the uh, of the bad yeah. stuff so i i believe the only time buster keaton ever addressed this directly um there he is quoted in the the dana stevens book cameraman which i've finished reading which is very good um that the reason why he kind of shipped the pr- shifted the perspective of this actual story, which is about Union soldiers stealing a train and just, like, fucking up a bunch of railroads as sabotage, was that he didn't think that audiences would accept uh, the South as the villains. Which, which is, is a weird thing to say. <laughs> right, but also, like, I don't know what... Like, I wasn't alive in 1926. I don't know what it was like. Like, maybe that was a purely mercenary thing of, like, he wanted this movie to be able to play in as many theaters as possible. But maybe there really was this, like, overall cultural thing of, like, we can't, we can't like, punch down at, like, the losers of the war. Like, because there's still a lot of veterans still alive in the 20s. Um, right. Yeah. And this movie also... Um did real well in the south in a lot i mean of i'm sure it did because they there were places that were giving free admission to uh i, I think i read this uh like giving free admission to civil war veterans mm. um so like confederates mm-hmm. i should say well if you're, uh, if you're in the south and united states in the yeah. 20s and you're a civil war veteran chances are you weren't from a northern state i'm guessing well, I mean, D.W. Griffith lived in New York City, but I, it, but I think he came from like Kentucky or something mm, like that. Yeah. But yeah. Anyway, this movie, uh, <laughs> beyond all the Civil War stuff, unfortunate. Uh, this movie is not as funny as I thought it would be. It's not uh, a comedy. This it's this not is a, a comedy. straight action movie. I think. Yeah. Which which took me a minute to realize like there's not a lot of jokes in this movie. There's not a yeah. lot of like silliness this isn't because uh, i feel like a lot of other buster keaton movies are like action comedy right they have a lot of cool stunts and like chases in them but there's they're full of jokes i mean i would say that his other movies are comedy first and like the action is like this 
form of comedy, mm. right? It's 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 comedy through action. Where like this is an this might be what you would call uh, today an action comedy, hmm. uh, where it is an action movie with a couple jokes thrown in, right? Uh, yeah. Like uh, the Channing Tatum movie that just came out a year ago. Uh, the the one with the the one the lot the Lost City and the uh, that's Brad Pitt. The, I would wait the Lost City and Brad Pitt. Oh yeah, you, the Lost the movie The Lost City. Isn't that yes. what it's called? Is that, that what it's called? That's more yeah. of a comedy first, I would say, but whatever. Okay, yeah. Okay, it's an action movie with some jokes. It's got yeah. some jokes. Yeah. This is one of Buster Keaton's most famous movies, for sure. Yep. Um, yeah. And it's considered one of his best. I... I don't think it holds up as well as a lot of his other ones do. And having, like, taking away all the pro-Confederate stuff, like... Yeah. I think genuinely, like, the narrative, the lack of jokes and the sort of, the narrative being as sort of paper thin and kind of hard to invest in as it is, I think, I think a lot of his other features have better narrative hooks than this one and get me more emotionally invested in them. Um, Yeah, I would agree. Whereas this is like, he is a train engineer, Uh, he, uh, he has his sweetheart that he wants to marry, but uh she's like hey you're not fighting in the war and so he's trying to like fight and he's trying to like prove his his you know masculinity to her through soldier dumb there's an intertitle which sounds like it should be out of a a 70s exploitation movie trailer which basically says there were two loves in his life his engine and his woman (laughs) (laughs) um but it's like I feel like a lot of other Buster Keaton movies are this thing of like he has to prove himself to some masculine ideal, right? Right, that he he's is like a, right. He's a boxer, a, but he doesn't want to be baby right. boy. <laughs> but it's like I feel like a lot of his other movies are about him sort of overcoming that, not through becoming the thing that everyone else wants him to be, but by proving himself on his own terms, kind of. And mm. I think this movie doesn't really do that. I think like no. he, he does kind of end up saving the day by being a good train engineer, but that's not what he's like celebrated for. Like at the, I mean, at the think... end of the movie, he is sort of accepted by his peers or like the people he's trying to kind of impress for doing soldier stuff, not by being a great train guy. But it, it is his knowledge of being a train guy that gets him through all of this, all of this stuff. True. Uh, he's like utilizing every kind of, aspect of his train knowledge to uh sabotage the northerners and and get ahead in the in the train but it's like the end of the movie he's like given a uniform and like medals and stuff like that i'm like it's not about that it's about right like because at the beginning of the movie he he can't he can't get uh he tries to enlist and he gets turned away because like no you're a train engineer we need those way more than soldiers (laughs) like you have training at like a skill (laughs) we need you (laughs) So I, I feel like even on a like a bare bones like meat potatoes narrative level, this mm-hmm. doesn't hold up as well as a lot of the other Buster Keaton uh, no. films. Like I I've been watching a bunch because Blank Check is covering Buster Keaton, mm-hmm. and so I watched a bunch that we skipped. Like I watched Battling Butler and Seven Chances and um, a bunch of them. Um, and I feel like 
a lot of those have a kind of stronger narrative especially uh go west is really really good i think the thing that this movie gets remembered for i mean rightfully is it's it's stunt stuff and it's spectacle which it is i mean kind of unparalleled at this point in time yeah it had a shot in it which at that time was the most expensive individual shot in a movie yet checks out Uh, like and it's yeah it is a one of the most famous shots from all of silent film you have seen it before yeah uh it is the train that is on the trestle bridge falling down as the bridge collapses in in flames and smoke and uh and chaos it is an actual train going over a burning bridge and the bridge collapsing halfway through and the train falling into a river and it rules (laughs) it's a great it's 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 very cool it's a train crashing off a bridge into a river the the whole movie is basically structured as uh one group of people in a train and another group of people in another train behind them uh and then them trying to like advance on each other or lay traps for each other uh or uh you know find some way to fool the other one uh and that is the kind of like crescendo final trap home alone style moving train track trap that uh that uh johnny silver is that his name johnny uh (laughs) is uh it has has laid for the union soldiers um uh structurally it did kind of remind me of mad max Fury road because i wrote that too yep chase in one direction (laughs) and then a chase in the opposite direction yep this is Fury Road. <laughs> yeah. Um, and who knows? Maybe maybe that is where George Miller even got that structure from. I mean, that's the thing. It's like, you know, because this is primarily an action movie, because this is a very simple action movie mm-hmm. in the way that Fury Road is, like, pure action mm-hmm. movie, uh, it, you know, it makes sense that this would be influential on action cinema in particular. Yeah. Um, th- there's a reason why the special features of the Blu-ray has uh, Tarantino. Uh, mm. being interviewed on it they gotta go uh, Taran- tarantino who said uh <laughs> yeah uh tarantino by the way said like uh usually with movies like this with the civil war uh you know so- like older movies where the the, the co- heroes of the confederates i can't get past it but this movie's so good that i can mm. uh according to old quentin there so this movie's like a string of set pieces basically yeah. and they're really good set pieces yeah yeah um like yeah some of the some of the most incredible stunts that we've seen from buster keaton or anyone at this point and so many that still hold up i mean that are just like another super famous stunt in this movie is him on the the front of the train on the cow catcher and there's like a a, like a block of wood on the track and he has to throw another block of wood onto that block of wood to knock it off and he does it with like inches to spare and it's like if he hadn't actually done that exactly correct the train might have crashed and he would have died like it's you can feel the danger the danger is palpable just watching it you're just like oh my god what no there's another like kind of dangerous stunt that he makes feel very casual where he's sitting on that arm of the yeah but like that connects the train wheels as it kind Mm -hmm. of moves up and down uh, and he's just kind of sitting there with his Buster Keaton yeah. no expression Another on. Another iconic Buster Keaton shot. 
Yes. Yeah. yeah, that's probably the second most famous shot from this movie. Um, this movie's filled with, like, it's like every every other scene. I'm just like, oh, yeah, it's a famous poster scene thing. I've seen this yeah. so many times. Like, any <laughs> montage, uh, like, I feel like so many montages of just, like, film history in general just, like, pull stuff from this movie because it's, like, there's so much just impressive stuff happening. It does feel like a bit of a culmination of, like, not just... Buster Keaton's love of like train gags, but of like filmmaking's love of trains, you know, like yeah, movies love trains. That has that has always been a thing, and will probably <laughs> always be a thing because it was like the second year of films ever had a big train movie, and that was like one of the most iconic, famous things ever to happen. And then they had a great train movie. Right, it's just like, (laughs) trains and film are, like, super intertwined. And this is one of the, like, canonical train films. Along with, what, Unstoppable? (laughs) And uh, The Commuter. (laughs) Yeah, The Commuter, yeah. (laughs) For sure, this is one of the great train movies. And it has a lot of great train stuff. It has one of the the pumpy handcart things. Oh, I love that. I, I, Um, watching that, it made me make make a kind of mental note that at some point in my life i want to operate one of those pumpy train cars right it, i feel it seems like it would be it look, fun. It, it probably it wouldn't like fun. be fun yeah. it'd probably be awful but it looks, I don't, it looks I don't, like fun I, I there are so many things in life that i want to do just to have done right uh, and that yeah. that's one of them <laughs> yeah we talked a lot about the like context of this movie which is definitely one of the more notable things about it i guess um I guess a very notable thing about this was this was absolutely the most money Buster Keaton was ever given to make a movie. And it was a bomb. And it was a critical and financial failure. And it kind of ended Buster's run of, like, total creative freedom and, like, just here's a bunch of money, do whatever you want. And he was like, I'm going to cash in all my chips on on this train movie. And people didn't respond well to it. Like, yeah, people didn't like how there weren't jokes in it and some people hey kind of yo took, make me laugh <laughs> some people kind of took offense at the sort of like him making a war movie um so the the critic for life magazine robert sherwood who was like a huge buster keaton fan would like was always going to bat for buster keaton gave this movie a negative review and said, someone should have told Buster that it is difficult to derive laughter from the sight of men being killed in battle. Which really speaks to the recency of the Civil War. Right, that it's like a very fresh, <laughs> raw thing. Yeah. Um, and so I think people probably also like weren't expecting that from a Buster Keaton movie. Like, Buster Keaton made a train movie. And they're like, great, let's go. And then there's like this big battle scene at the end. With, like a lot of death and destruction. And they're like, no thank you. I mean, it wasn't what I expected otherwise, but, you know, the, the of course, everyone considers this movie to be a classic now. Uh, got the Blade Runner treatment of uh, n- nobody nobody right. liking it at the time, and then on reflection, everybody loves it, Although except I, for me. Yeah, I this is one of the few sort of, like, really classic, super famous silent movies that I, I don't, I didn't love. Um, mm. And, yeah, I it is definitely, like, considered one of the best Buster Keaton if not the best Buster Keaton movie. And I'm like, disagree. Go, Go West is so much better. Sherlock Jr. So much better. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, this, um, it's not bad, 
but it 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 definitely didn't really wow me apart right. from like some of the some of the it's, s- it's, like set pieces it's set pieces are really great um but even that there's like there's the sort of like first train chase there's the second train chase there's a big chunk in the middle where it is yeah just kind of like an action movie of him like behind enemy lines trying to like rescue uh this his kidnapped uh you know woman <laughs> betrothed no um no not even because she ditches him as soon as he can immediately get, uh immediately like a, gives him like an ultimatum which is uniform <laughs> every buster keaton movie is a woman giving him an ultimatum um <laughs> got something you're working through there buster yeah uh i mean yeah he ha- he is you know not the most lucky man in marriage at least in this period of time in his life there is a kind of a good gag in this like middle section in between the two train chases um where he's hiding under a table as like the union soldiers are like planning a battle and uh he's like peeking through a hole in the tablecloth that is just like it's not super funny but it's like a well-constructed gag i guess yeah or if not even a gag just like a um because i don't know if it's funny because it's more of just like a uh an interesting like kind of filmic thing of like mm-hmm. there there's some tension being built by him being under this table that the union soldiers are sitting at and uh then one of them is holding a cigar and accidentally burns a hole in the tablecloth and you think like oh no they're gonna like look at look through mm-hmm. the hole or notice the notice the tablecloth burning and notice him right under the table uh and so it's being used as a point of tension and then the the girl comes up later, and then you, like, there it re- gets recontextualized as like a way for him to observe out, out again, mm-hmm. um, rather than this a, a thing that's threatening him. Yeah. Uh, but but yeah, it's good. It's cool. Um, the female lead in this movie is uh, Annabelle Lee is the character, which is maybe a reference to the sad Edgar Allan Poe poem. I'm not sure why that would be, but. Um, she's played by Marion Mack, who I don't know if she was the lead in any of the other Buster Keaton movies. Um, but she's good in this. She gets to do a lot of, uh, action stuff, which is fun. Yeah. Yeah. They have this kind of like classic, um, I don't know, like I'm good at trains and, and you're trying to help, uh, like kind of action movie situation. Yeah. Uh, where, yeah, like she'll like she can't like figure out how to how to back up the train or 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 to not make it go too fast and Mm -hmm. so he has to kind of compensate for for his the lack of knowledge of his uh compatriot Uh, and there's some kind of gags that are that come out of that but yeah yeah uh i guess one one other quick thing that i'll say about this which i forgot to mention when we were talking more about the confederate stuff uh is that uh joe hisaishi wrote a soundtrack to this movie um, oh right the ghibli guy yeah famous yeah. for doing the score to many ghibli movies i think all of miyazaki's movies uh and his scores are beautiful um his, his music is beautiful uh but i started watching it with his score on and i felt like it was a little too like whimsical and earnest hmm. uh for a movie and it just like made the Confederate stuff feel worse because <laughs> it because the soundtrack was kind of like 
encouraging this kind of innocence and uh and you know glory in a way of being confederate yeah uh and uh and it made it feel like a it made this like you know the, the character that buster keaton is playing is in all likelihood a horrendous person you know uh and i i mean i don't know he seems kind of checked out i who's who's to say yeah i don't know he's in the confederacy and he wants to be recognized by the the confederates and wants to fight for all that i don't know but like it it made him feel like a quirky ghibli protagonist Mm. and not like a confederate soldier you know (laughs) so i had to switch it over to the kind of more traditional uh plinky plonky piano Mm. soundtrack yeah good old plinky plonky (laughs) um there is a good there's a good uh episode of drunk history about the actual the actual story of the general the train john gabris doing the narration um it's a good one so if you if if you've seen the general the buster keaton movie and you want to know what the actual story was like but you also want a very it, it told in a very silly way uh check that out and we uh we know if you listen to this podcast that you like historical context presented in a silly way there you go uh speaking of this podcast it's over now correct uh thanks for listening everybody uh you can catch us next week for uh some of the some of the real all-time Big Daddies of Silent Film. Yeah. Uh, Sunrise and Metropolis next year. Next episode oh is going to be, you know, let's let's call it right now one of the one of our best episodes. Oh, okay. That doesn't feel like you're cursing <laughs> us in, in, at all. Well, it's uh, it's it's like one of the all time great movie years is 1927. Yes. So we're gonna have a lot to talk about. You've seen Sunrise already and you love it. I've seen yeah. Metropolis already and I love it. Um, you've probably seen Metropolis I already have. too. I've seen it a couple yes. times. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> so that'll be that'll be a good time we got uh, wings we got uh you know sync sound we got uh um also more racism <laughs> with the jazz singer um gonna be a lot lot to cover wow yeah i guess it's kind of the final proper silent year huh i mean in a way i guess i mean we'll probably talk about this more in the coming episodes because like silent movies don't go away but it, it does like there is a pretty dramatic shift away from silent movies into sync sound and that really dramatically changes how they're made also like yeah a lot of this like outside location stuff the like camera movement and things like that a lot of this like wild formal experimentation kind of goes away for a bit because it's like no kibosh we got to put a camera inside of like a mini fridge (laughs) to 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 keep the sound out and like shoot everything inside and sound stages with lights and things like it it really significantly kind of shifts what uh what kind of movies are made and like what they look or sound like so uh yeah we'll we'll get into it if you uh, haven't already just uh you know check us out on instagram and and whatnot um we post stuff there sometimes <laughs> uh and uh yeah, i don't know say hi in the comments you know there you go yeah thanks to our commenter (laughs) (laughs) our one commenter (laughs) 
So yeah, all right, uh, Glenn. It's glad I'm glad that we're we're back in the swing of it after our little hiatus. Indeed, it's good to see you this year, and I will see you next year. See you next year. <laughs>